how God was seeking a bride for his son. Each book is different from every other book. I'm trying to give you the keys for you to unlock it for yourself. You're listening to Unlocking the Bible by David Pawson. Visual materials featured in this talk can be found online at davidpawson.org. This is Ezra and Nehemiah, part two. So we turn to the book of Nehemiah, which I've already told you is so similar in outline and structure to Ezra that it must really come from the same hand. And we have the same uh, fourfold division with two subdivisions, then three, then three, then two. And that really does correspond to the contents of the book. We begin then with this third return. It began when Nehemiah, still in Babylon, gets bad news from Jerusalem. He was by this time the cupbearer to the king Artaxerxes. And I have the feeling he got the job through Esther because if you remember, Artaxerxes was the stepson of the Queen Esther, the Jewish girl who became the queen. And uh, however he got the job, it was not a very nice job, tasting the wine to see if it was poisoned uh, <laughs> before, before the emperor touched it, but it was a very responsible job. And it also made him a confidant of the emperor, the king, because uh, just like a, a king's physiotherapist would be a confidant and would uh, share things in the relaxed atmosphere of that relationship. So the news that came through to Nehemiah was that the walls of Jerusalem, which had been built, had been pulled down again and that the local uh, people around Jerusalem were so angry about the rebuilding of the city that it was just being destroyed as fast as it was built. And he looked so unhappy that the king said, what's the matter? Never seen you unhappy before. And it says, Nehemiah said a prayer and said to the king, now that's a quick prayer <laughs> and yet Nehemiah is a man of prayer. Before he spoke to the king, what do I say, Lord? Then he told him and the king said, you've been a good friend to me, Nehemiah. I'm going to give you authority to go back and rebuild the walls and furthermore, I'll give you letters to the people who have the materials that they must give you enough material to rebuild the wall. It's a lovely beginning to the story. Second part of the uh, first section is that he went and made a secret inspection by night so that nobody knew he did it and he went right round the broken down walls, counting the gates, the length of the wall that needed to be rebuilt. Here again is a man who counts the cost before he does anything, a man who doesn't rush in in a foolhardy way. He's a man of faith but he sees exactly what the task is before he starts. He made that night inspection to size up the job. Then he came to rebuild. Now if you go to Jerusalem today, uh, you could be forgiven for getting it rather wrong as to where the city of Jerusalem actually is. Most people look at the very old walls of the present old city and think that's the Old Testament city, it isn't. This is the walled area today and these walls were only a few hundred years old. They were built by Suleiman the Magnificent just a few centuries ago during the crusade time and uh, so people go to Jerusalem today and think they're looking at the old city. They're not. The old city was outside the present wall. It was on this tongue of land down here, south of the temple area. There's the present temple area with the Mosque of Omar and the Mosque Al-Aqsa 
and it's about 13 acres, a big stone platform, at the top of this hill. And there's a street going right down the middle of this ridge. That's the old high street of the old city of Jerusalem. Here is the Valley of Kidron, the Valley of Decision, the Valley of Judgment. That's here, full of graves. Then there's a, a lesser valley up the middle here, and the Valley of Hinnom or Gehenna goes off to the west and then north again. So you've got these three valleys coming together and draining out to the Dead Sea. And it was on this ridge between the first two valleys that the old city of the Jebusites, the city of Salem, who had a king priest called Melchizedek, uh, which it, Salem means city of peace, it's Shalom, Salam, Salem. And this tongue of land is really the old city and the temple was built above the city. You go up to worship the Lord, up the high street, past David's palace, which was just below the temple, and then the house of the people were down here. Uh, the problem, of course, was water. There was a spring just outside here and when enemies came, they could cut off Jerusalem from water, so Hezekiah built a tunnel right through this hill into the pool of Siloam at the bottom and they brought the water within the city. You can still go through that tunnel today. You can see this ridge more clearly from the south when the sun is low. And there's a picture uh, looking up to the temple area. There's the Kidron Valley, here's the Tyropean, and here's the Valley of Gehenna. But you can see the sun just picks out that ridge. Can you see it? That makes it clearer. That's the city of Jerusalem from the Old Testament with the temple above it. All right? Now then, uh, a bit of archaeology may interest you. Uh, that's a picture looking across here, looking across that land from the east, from uh, this place here, just looking across the ridge so you can see the old city. And in fact, you can see on that photo some of the excavations that have been done on the old Old Testament city. And here they have found the wall of Nehemiah. That's the only bit they've found so far, but there are the actual stones that Nehemiah built. I find this fascinating. I, I wasn't interested in archaeology until I got interested in the Bible, seriously, but archaeology becomes a fascinating subject because uh, you're seeing before your very eyes. Those are the very stones that he oversaw. Of course, they each built a section of the wall opposite their own home. He had them beautifully organized. He had to post guards and uh, they worked with one hand and kept a sword in the other. They were ready for anything. But the astonishing fact is that he got the entire city wall built in 52 days, seven and a half weeks, under two months. And it's said because the people had a will to work. And so each family built the bit of wall outside their house all the way around. They got the gates, the gate posts up, and finally the gates, and for the first time the city was secure. Now they faced many difficulties during that time. Let's take the photos away and go back to the outline of the book. They encountered a lot of difficulties erecting these defences of the city. Some were external opposition and all sorts of methods were used to try and stop it. The first was ridicule, mockery, and the Samaritans came and they said a fox could push that wall over. 
But then when they saw that mockery didn't uh, work, they tried threats and it got a bit more serious. They even had a conspiracy and tried to lure Nehemiah away from the job and said, uh, we'd like to negotiate with you. Let's be friends. You come away with us and we'll negotiate. And Nehemiah said, no, I'm building the wall. And he stayed. But they also had internal difficulties. And this is the sad part of it. Within the walls, the rich were getting richer and the poor were getting poorer through lending money. Now, of course, again, the Jews have a gift for lending money. They financed a lot of Europe, still do, uh, through various banks. Bearings was only second to Rothschild's, as you probably know. And through usury and mortgages, some Jews were getting very rich and others were getting into negative equity. This sound familiar? And this was bad among the people of God. And so Nehemiah had to deal with that and to even out the economic uh, levels among the people. But still there were very few people wanting to live in the city. Most were living in a scattered way, which was much easier to run away when enemies came. And so he had to go out and uh, almost force people to come and live in the city. And they built homes and he went out and persuaded family after family, look, the city is now secure, come and live in it. And he particularly had lists of descendants of people living in Jerusalem uh, people related in families and he persuaded them to come and live. And he took a census so that he knew where everybody was and there were altogether 42,360 Jews, 700, sorry, 7,337 servants and 245 singers. That's an interesting census, isn't it? He listed the singers because, of course, they wanted to restore all the services of the temple and the worship of God. It is then that we find Ezra reading the law publicly from his wooden pulpit and it says he not only read it but he gave the sense of it. It's important not just to read the Bible. Mind you, reading Scripture aloud is, is very necessary. And uh, as some of you know, twice in Guildford we read the Bible right through from cover to cover aloud non-stop. Did you read part of it? Yes. I thought you did. And uh, it took us from Sunday night, nine o'clock, till breakfast time on Thursday. We didn't know what would happen, but in fact somebody reckoned an aggregate total of 2,000 people over the four days came to listen and we sold half a ton of Bibles. Some people's lives were changed forever. And people were coming and saying, well, just one more book, just one more book. See, they'd never heard the whole story. They'd just heard ten sentences one Sunday from one place and ten sentences the next Sunday from somewhere else. You never get the message of the Word of God that way. But when people sat and listened to a whole book being read, they were, they were addicted. Some came late at night and were still there next breakfast morning. It was an intriguing experience. It's good to read the Bible aloud in great chunks and not just tiny little snacks. I call them titbits, do you know what I mean? That's what we get used to and you don't get the flow of the Word of God that way. And so that's what we did. 
but also you need to give people the sense. That's what I've been trying to do in these videos, not just to bring your attention to the book, but to give you the sense as well, so that you see the un unfolding of God's purpose and mind. And that's what Ezra did. But then he broke down in weeping and confessed. Now there's a big difference between Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra saw it as a time to weep. Nehemiah was telling them to have a party and to enjoy it. And uh, you still have this difference, don't you? Uh, but uh, Ezra wept over the sins that the Word of God was revealing. But Nehemiah said, this is a wonderful occasion. It was done at the Feast of Tabernacles, which is their harvest festival. And it's a joyful occasion. And it, in fact, the rabbis will tell you that if you're not full of joy at the time of tabernacles, you are sinning. It's a, it's a feast to celebrate. And so uh, Nehemiah said, enjoy yourselves, have the best meal you've ever had. And he encouraged them to cook really good meals and to have a celebration. Well, we need both. We need to weep and to, to be joyful. There's a time to weep and a time to rejoice and we're wise if we know the right time. And Ezra got them to renew the covenant. So uh, he got them to promise again to submit to the God of Israel and he got them to renew the covenant. Say more about that in a moment. Actually, Nehemiah also had to reform. I often say the difference between Ezra and Nehemiah is that Ezra pulled out his own hair but Nehemiah pulled out other people's hair. <laughs> and uh, that's the difference between them. You'll find that's exactly what they both did. But Nehemiah, he was more of an extrovert perhaps, but he literally pulled the hair out of uh, the sinning Israelites. He also had to deal with mixed marriage and uh, break them up. And it was the men who'd married pagan girls whose hair he pulled out incidentally, and he called curses on them. He also had to deal with misappropriated funds. I'm afraid there were the Judas Iscariots in the city who were misappropriating the money they looked after for others. He had to deal with desecrated Sabbaths because these businessmen who came back from Babylon had only the same business to make a, a living and of course they didn't have nearly the same market. And so to try and build up their businesses, they, they opened their shops on the Sabbath and they traded on the Sabbath. And Nehemiah actually insisted on shutting the gates every Sabbath so they couldn't go in and out and trade. Then he found them camping outside the gates <laughs> and he had to deal with that. So Nehemiah was quite a reformer and above all that there were priests neglecting their duties in the temple and he had to put that right. So both Ezra and Nehemiah not only had to be rebuilders, of things, but they had to be reformers of people. And uh, they did it courageously, even ruthlessly. Let's look at Nehemiah the man. On the whole, most people warm to Nehemiah rather than Ezra. Don't know if you have that reaction. Uh, there's something a bit uh, nicer about Nehemiah, not least because he was a happy man and he encouraged others to be happy. And he said, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, how often have, have you heard that quoted? And that's Nehemiah. I don't think Ezra would ever have said that. Ezra was too busy weeping over them. But Nehemiah said, the joy of the Lord is your strength. 
and I think they make a perfect couple actually. They go together to rebuild. The help and the comfort belong together. The joy and the sorrow. We need both. We need balance. But there are things I notice about Nehemiah that impress me deeply. We feel we know him. He's much more candid about his feelings than Ezra. He talks more about himself. He's more autobiographical, the more I passages. And this tells us four things about him. First, he was a prayerful man. If Ezra is the Bible man, Nehemiah is the prayer man. Once again, they make a good partnership. But the most prominent thing about Nehemiah was that before he did a thing, he prayed. And we have some long prayers from him, and we have some very short prayers from him. It isn't the length of your prayer that matters, it's the depth of it. And we have some public prayers from him, and we have some private prayers from him. And we have prayers before something happened and prayers after something happened. This man just talked to the Lord naturally about everything. The man of prayer. Secondly, he was a practical man. I like that. Terribly practical. He was well organized. Some people are so heavenly minded they're no earthly use. You know that. But not this man. This man of prayer was a man who was practically. He didn't mind putting his hand to cementing. He could organize well. He studied the gates and the walls. He wasn't up in the clouds. He was a practical man. Isn't it wonderful when you get a combination of a practical man and a prayerful man? Thirdly, he was an emotional man. Man of deep feelings. There were times when he had deep sorrow, but mostly he was a happy man and he encouraged others to enjoy the Lord and to rejoice and to have the strength of joy and it does make a person strong, but he could be angry. He could pull people's hair out. I like this man. <laughs> he's an emotional man, but above all, he's a social man. He's a social man. I don't think Ezra could have done what Nehemiah did because Nehemiah got on with people. He was brilliant at personnel management. He could get others really working. Now, Ezra was a man on his own more, Whereas Nehemiah was a man he could really get in alongside. He could get alongside people, he could roll his sleeves up with the best of them and, and somehow when he was around they worked. They had a heart to work. With this man we'll make it. And he could boost morale, he could keep them going when they flagged and let's get the job done fellas, come on. And uh, there's always something attractive about a man like that. And it's interesting that when he talks about the work he doesn't say I, he always says we. He had his private moments when he inspected the wall. I walked around the walls, but when it comes to the building, and we built the walls. He gave credit to everybody. We got on with the job. We had a mind to work, and we got it done in 52 days. Something very attractive about a man like that. He doesn't say, that was all my achievement. I did it all. No, we did it. There's such a balance in his character, prayerful and practical, joyful and sorrowful, tough and tender, sensitive to God and sensitive to people. Lovely balance in this man's character. And I think we should be inspired by scriptural characters to emulate what's good in them and to avoid their mistakes if we can. Well now, why study history from so long ago? Why go back so long? What's that got to do with us? 2,000 miles away and 
two and a half thousand years later. Well, I just want to summarize. We are looking at interesting events and inspiring personalities, but really we are reading the story of God and his people, a God who bound himself by a covenant to one people and one nation and now binds himself to us with a new covenant. Notice how Nehemiah talks about my God. My God will do this. My God is mighty. My God will see the works completed. And we have here a picture again of God who keeps his promises and we need to remember that he promises his people two things, to bless their obedience and to curse their disobedience. And the same God who keeps the one promise will keep the other. And the fact that he sent them into exile, he was keeping his promise to them. If you read Leviticus 26 verse 44, he promised to take them out of the promised land if they misbehaved and he kept his promise. Now why was it 70 years? We learn why at the end of the book of Chronicles. One of the laws of God was that the land needed its Sabbath rest no less than the people and God commanded that every seventh year they should not take crops from the land but give it a fallow rest so that the land had a holiday and then it could do all the better the next year and they hadn't done that for 500 years. So how many years rest or holiday had the land missed? 70. And at the end of the book of Chronicles, God said, if you won't give the land its holiday, I will. And the land is 70 years behind its rest. So out you go for 70 years. Isn't that interesting? That's why the exile lasted exactly 70 years. The land had to have its rest. God keeps his word. He has promised to reward the righteous and punish the wicked. He will do both because he has covenanted to do both. And that will apply to his people as much as to anyone else. Paul writing to Christians says, we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ to receive the things done in the body. We must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. God will keep his promise. Now in both these two books, Ezra and Nehemiah, I notice that God works secretly. There are no prophetic words in this, these books, there are no miracles and yet you can see God working in an amazing quiet way. He works first in the leaders outside the people, men like Cyrus and Artaxerxes, and God can work in the hearts of people who don't know him. That's amazing, isn't it? If you go to be interviewed by someone uh, who isn't a Christian, you can still pray that God will prepare their hearts for your visit. Do you realize that? It's a quiet way in which God works to prepare somebody before you go there. I've had so many examples of that. And you think, that wasn't a battle, I thought it was going to be a battle. And they seem to be ready for what I wanted to say. That's how God can work. doesn't need to part Red Seas. He can work in that way too. 
And then he worked here by raising up Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel and Joshua. And God works by raising up the right people at the right time, the right leaders for his people. That's just as wonderful as the miracles. It's God working to accomplish his purpose. But alas, and this is the lesson I get from here, those who came back to the land fell back into the sins. The one sin they didn't fall back into ever was idolatry. To this day, Jews have such a horror of idolatry that they have never again gone back to worshipping idols. Never will they do that. But they went back to other sins and that is the tragedy. Winston Churchill wrote a magnificent history of World War II in six volumes. I've read them and they're fascinating reading, but the sixth has a very interesting title, the very end of World War II. He called it Triumph and Tragedy. And the subtitle is this, how the great democracies triumphed and thus were able to resume the follies that it so nearly cost them their lives. That was the ultimate verdict of the great wartime leader on World War II, how the great democracies triumphed and thus were able to resume the follies that it so nearly cost them their lives. Human nature is like that and I'm afraid though they didn't go back into idolatry, they went back into the other sins and the result was God stopped speaking to them for 400 years and God neither did a miracle nor gave them a message for four whole centuries and he waited until the fullness of time and then he sent them his son, Jesus. So really with Ezra and Nehemiah and the two prophets Haggai and Zechariah all concerned with the rebuilding, we finish up with a man called Malachi, the very last prophet and his last word to Israel for 400 years was the word curse, curse. That's the last word in your Old Testament, curse. And yet Malachi himself looked forward to the return of a prophet like Elijah who would be sent to announce God's ultimate messenger. And we live on the right side of all that and we know how it's all fulfilled. Let's just look again at the chart of the Old Testament, see where we are. We've just been looking at Ezra and Nehemiah, the last historical books in the Old Testament. And there's Malachi, the very last prophet for 400 years. And you know, because Malachi and Matthew are close together in our Bibles, we think they immediately followed. But four centuries God's people waited and waited and waited. No wonder when John the Baptist came dressed like Elijah and speaking the prophet, prophecies of God again, the whole country went to see him and he said, into the Jordan with you, have a bath, you're not clean enough for the kingdom of God. And he paid for it with his life when the Edomite, the descendant of Esau, Herod, was rebuked for being wrongly married in God's sight. Well, there it is. So we've come virtually to the end of the Old Testament 
but I haven't yet uh, made a video on Malachi, but I will. One final thing. Daniel made an amazing prophecy. Now, he was here in the exile, and uh, some of his prophecies are really incredible. And if you've uh, watched my video on Daniel, you know how incredible his predictions were. But there was one prediction that he made which is very relevant to a study of Ezra and Nehemiah. I'll just read it. He said, Know and understand this, from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Anointed One, the Ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. And after the sixty-two sevens, the Anointed One will be cut off. Now, he said that at the time of the exile. Now, if we add that up, seven sevens and sixty-two sevens, we come to 490 years. A year then was 360 days, not uh, 365. From the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of the Anointed One, 490. And when you add that up, it could be any one of the uh, decrees to return, whether it's the decree of Cyrus or Artaxerxes. The interesting thing is, if you take one reckoning, it comes to AD 26. If you take another, it comes to AD 30. Now, there are difficulties of reckoning the dates because of the change of calendars, as you know, and the change of the length of year. But here, isn't it amazing, 490 years after both decrees, you come right into the life of Jesus. How on earth could Daniel know that? Well, Daniel didn't know it, but God did. And so from the time of the exile, the coming of the Messiah was already dated, and God's plan was already fixed. 490 years after the first decree, the Anointed One would come and, and would be cut off. And Jesus came and was crucified and raised from the dead. So, right from the exile through to Jesus, there's a direct line of prophecy. I believe God showed that to Daniel so that we should know that even though the children of Israel coming back from exile went back into sin, all was not lost. God knew what to do about it. God isn't surprised. He has already planned what He will do to put the situation right, and He sent a Saviour to get them out of their sin. That's why Jesus was cut off after 490 years. Amen. You have been listening to David Pawson's Unlocking the Bible. Visual materials featured in this talk and other free resources like this can be found online at davidpawson.org.